0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Amid recent hospital closures, Appalachian women are having to travel farther and farther to give birth.
1: Maybe you're in labor for 24 hours and that sucks, but maybe you're also in labor for like one hour and if the closest hospital is one hour away, like you're gonna be giving birth on the side of
0: the road. And we'll have more from our series on the future of greyhound racing in West Virginia. If you look up greyhound in a dictionary, it says racing. That's what the dog's made for, is racing. I can't believe that we're going to be the only state to have you know, the only two tracks left, which I'm glad. And many of us obsess over heirloom tomatoes for their delicious flavors. But we'll hear about a movement of folks who want to save them for a deeper purpose.
2: The fact of the matter is one simple seed can produce a whole plant, which can produce hundreds of more seeds, which can feed a whole community.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Getting to medical care is a problem that a lot of families in rural Appalachia communities face. It's especially difficult for families trying to bring children into the world. That's true in western North Carolina, where closures of hospitals and birthing facilities are creating what's known as maternal health care deserts. Reporter Clarissa donnelly Deroven has covered this issue for North Carolina Health News. I reached out to her to learn more. Thanks for joining us, Clarissa. Can you help us understand just what a maternal healthcare desert is?
1: Western North Carolina is the Appalachian region of North Carolina, and so it's very mountainous. It doesn't take you like a half hour to get somewhere that's 30 miles away, you know? And so I was using the phrase maternal healthcare desert just to refer to this area where, depending on where you live, There are very few options for you to get care, both prenatal, postnatal care, and very few places that you can give birth. There's eight places where you can give birth. Last year, there were nine. There was a birthing center, which was actually down the street from my house, and that closed. And it was mostly midwives. It was a birthing center. It wasn't in a hospital. And so there are just all of these systematic factors that lead to closure of these facilities, which can result in really, really dangerous and dire situations for, for people who get pregnant in this area.
0: So for pregnant women in Appalachian, North Carolina, what does the healthcare landscape look like for them?
1: it really depends where you live what you have access to like there are more um like community clinics and clinics nearby where people can get pre and postnatal care but depending on where you live that also might be like a 45 minute drive and so what we also know about this region is that it's poorer than a lot of the rest of the state and there's higher rates of medicaid and also people who are in what's called the coverage gap so they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to get subsidies for private health insurance on the Affordable Care Act because North Carolina didn't expand Medicaid. And so there are all these people in Western North Carolina who don't have health insurance or who have Medicaid. And so like when there are so few options already and also you don't have a lot of money, it just means that a lot of people end up going without the care that they need.
0: You know, as Appalachian areas have lost... Population and jobs. We've seen healthcare clinics and hospitals close across the region over the last 10 or 20 years. What's that look like in North Carolina in terms of facilities that provide maternal healthcare?
1: Yeah. So what I found was that there have been 13 either full hospital closures or specifically closures of a maternity unit within a hospital that remains open. Um, And so what that means is that there are 13 fewer places for people in rural North Carolina to give birth than there were in decades past. The closure of a whole hospital obviously impacts a million different things in a community, but it can be like especially dangerous for pregnancy because labor is so unpredictable. And because like maybe you can, maybe you're in labor for 24 hours and that sucks, but maybe you're also in labor for like one hour. And if the closest hospital is one hour away, like it, you're going to be giving birth on the side of the road.
0: So on top of all this, you know, the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade last week. Which has implications far beyond um, women's ability to get abortions. How does the Supreme Court decision affect rural maternal health care in North Carolina?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's going to have a significant impact. So in North Carolina, it's sort of unclear because abortion will remain the same as it was before the Supreme Court decision in North Carolina. This is going to be an issue In rural areas, because those were already the places that have more difficulty accessing care. And so it's going to mean that it's more difficult for rural women to access abortions. Um, And so probably there's going to be more rural births. And this is an issue if you don't have a hospital where you can give birth, which is the case for a lot of rural people in North Carolina. I've seen like really different estimates, but one estimate that I saw said that there could be upwards of 800,000 births per year, new births, which is so many. And it's so many when you don't have anywhere for those people to go to give birth.
0: So what are people trying to do to help fill this void?
1: There's obviously like a lot of solutions (laughs) that are needed. And there's a lot of different ways that you can try and tackle this, this problem. But one of the ways is... There is a new fellowship program, which is the program that doctors complete after their residency to train more maternal fetal medicine specialists in Asheville. So in this Western North Carolina region, because as it stands right now, there are very few maternal fetal medicine. They call them MFMs because it's kind of a mouthful. And so there are very few MFMs in rural areas in general because of just, like, the general lack of specialists in rural areas, Um, but also, like, it, because usually, like, these uh, specialists are associated with research universities, um, and so they tend to congregate in, in city centers. And so there's a new training program for these specialists in Asheville with the goal of helping to increase access to high-risk pregnancy care in this area because it's, it's needed. So these are all sort of um, approaches to increase the workforce in rural areas. The second one is... Um, a new training program for psychiatric nurse practitioners. This is expected to be helpful in areas like this because there is not only a shortage of maternal healthcare providers, but also of mental healthcare providers. And all of these barriers to getting maternal care obviously impact people um, emotionally and mentally on top of all of the things that we know can happen to your brain during pregnancy. So, you know, postpartum depression and all of that, all of the difficulties that people experience getting care also impacts them emotionally. And so there's a great need for emotional support after birth and and, and during pregnancy. And so there are these two workforce training programs that are aiming to increase the number of providers in this area. And so that's just one small solution But ultimately, like, there are much bigger barriers to how much these two programs can do. Um, Because like one of the doctors who I spoke with said, the real issue is that hospitals are closing and that people can't get care near where they live. And so... It's going to be really hard to solve any of these problems unless there's somewhere that people can go in their community to, to get prenatal, postnatal care and to give birth. And then with the question of nurses, uh, in North Carolina, nurses have restricted practice authority, which means that essentially a physician needs to sign off on everything that they do. They really can't do anything unless they have a physician who's also willing to, to help them. So people are trying, you know, but there are also like all of these um, structural barriers that, that people inevitably, inevitably come up against.
0: Clarissa donnelly Deroven, thank you so much for coming on and and speaking with us about maternal health care in Appalachia.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: That was Clarissa donnelly Deroven, who covers rural health and Medicaid for North Carolina Health News. You can find a link to her story about maternal health care deserts on our website, wvpublic.org. For pregnant women in Appalachia, finding medical care is challenging enough. For black women, it's even harder. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. Experts say having more black health care workers makes a difference and improves care, Crystal Good is the founder and publisher of Black by God, the West Virginian, a news organization centering black voices in the state. She looked into what options black families in West Virginia have for finding birth workers that look like them.
3: When I was giving birth to my second child in 1999, I had a black doula by my side, Pia Long. Before I met her, I didn't know what a doula was, much less that as a Black woman, her presence could increase my odds of having a successful birth. I just thought, to have a baby, you go to the hospital. But Pia told me there was another way. She told me the history of Black doulas and the traditional folk medicines practiced by Black women for years. At the time, Pia was the only Black doula in West Virginia. And since then, like so many of my West Virginia friends, she and her family left. When you're the only Black anything in West Virginia, you carry a weight. If I leave, who is going to take up this work? But another Black woman began her journey to be by the side of Black mothers and to become a certified nurse midwife, Stacia Quintrell.
2: I provide care to make sure that the person is healthy who's carrying the baby um, and then go to their house when it's time for them to have their baby and make sure that the baby and the person having it is healthy and then assist with the birth and stay about four hours afterwards. And really it's just to govern um, over and to oversee that, that it's progressing
3: normally. Research has found that having midwives involved in childbirth improves outcome for both mothers and babies. But for black women, better outcomes is not just as simple as more midwives. A lot of these midwives have hidden
2: biases or are actively racist, and that midwifery doesn't protect them. It is having providers that look like them that
3: are culturally competent. Stacia recalls one birth in 2021, where she noticed an important sign that a mom was not doing well, one that the other providers missed. I spoke to that patient her name is Carmen Squires. When she thought her labor was starting, she called Stacia. I think
4: I'm having some contractions. And I said, I'm going to go get in the shower. Um, she said, yeah, do that. Go get in the shower. And if they stop, then, you know, we can kind of see what happens from there. But when I got out of the shower, it
3: was more intense. I'm like, yeah, that was reverse. I don't think that was supposed to do that. Stacia dropped everything and started the two-hour journey to Carmen's house. During the delivery, a complication came up.
4: I had gotten pale a little bit, but Stacia was like, you need to drink
3: some juice and lay back. She's pale. And another midwife said, is she really? None of the white healthcare providers in the room recognized that Carmen was going pale. This complication let Carmen know she made the right decision to work with a midwife that looked like her. Carmen trusted Stacia, and Stacia knew there wasn't time for second-guessing. She was pale, but nobody noticed. It's
2: hard to tell if if you're not used to looking at somebody with brown skin when they become pale. When we're looking at medical training or nursing training, it's not done on all different types of skin. The base level is usually white skin, and things look very much different on white skin. That's rashes, that's bruises, that's lesions, that's all types of stuff, and being pale is one of those things.
3: And for Stacia... Being culturally competent doesn't just mean attending diversity training. It means being brought up in that culture. It means providing black families with a black midwife.
2: You hear a lot of like, oh, you know, well we're doing anti-racism trainings and we're doing this and we're doing this. And so they they think that they have become competent in these things. And so you start to get into this almost white saviorism. And white saviorism to me is almost as bad as racism. <laughs> because you start you start off like oh my gosh they need me i have to be here and then because you don't understand the culture you it turns into resentment i talked about this with
3: lori andrus she's a researcher and associate dean for equity inclusion and community engagement at Geisinger commonwealth school of medicine in scranton pennsylvania lori studied racial disparities in infant mortality in west virginia Black infants die at almost twice the rate of white infants in the state. And she says healthcare institutions have gotten invested in a bad strategy.
5: Being colorblind.
3: Instead of paying attention to diversity among the people who provide healthcare.
5: We know that if our population is made up of 30% African Americans, but we're hiring or allowing into our institutions those. African-Americans at a rate of less than 2% every year, then that's a disproportionate kind of
3: entry. Lori says not having nearly enough Black medical providers creates all sorts of issues, everything from inequality in health outcomes to miscommunication to not taking the pain of Black women seriously. Lori says too often we tend to blame oppressed groups for unequal outcomes.
5: What we know in the United States, more likely than not, that disease category is socially patterned or it's going to be broken down by race. And so the results will say those at risk for that disease are minorities, African Americans, the elderly, those who live below the poverty line. And so we've begun to associate Blackness with illness. Blackness with a greater rate of death. But what we haven't done is to look at the reasons why Black people would suffer at a greater rate with these different kinds of illnesses.
3: Having a provider who looks like you, understands you, makes a difference. Luckily for me, I had Pia when I was giving birth. And luckily for Carmen, she had Stacia. The connection
4: that I felt with Stacia is the reason why I stayed with the home birth. In the midst of us deciding that we were gonna do home birth, there was a part of me that was like, Carmen, you're in West Virginia? I don't know. But Stacia would send me information, um, check on me all the time. And it was just convenient, smooth,
3: amazing. Like It was great. Carmen delivered a healthy baby. Olivia Cannon, born on Juneteenth of 2021. I just knew
4: that she was going to be born on Juneteenth. And I kept telling the other midwife, um, I'm like, she's going to be born on Juneteenth. She's
3: going to be born on Juneteenth. Baby Olivia was one of the last babies station needed to help deliver to become a fully licensed, certified professional midwife. Carmen had three babies in hospitals before her home birth experience with Stacia, and she says she can't even compare the experiences. Most of all, she was thankful that she could find a Black birth worker to be there through everything. And now, with the birth of Olivia Cannon, other Black families across West Virginia will have that same option.
0: That was writer and poet Crystal Good with help from Kyle Vass. The story was originally heard on The Pulse, a weekly health and science show from WHYY with support from the Commonwealth Fund. State legislatures across the Ohio Valley are considering a variety of anti-LGBTQ policies, And one of the opinions written in the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision has people worried about a coming wave of attacks on gay and trans people. But at the same time, people across Appalachia, from its largest cities to its smallest towns, took part in celebrations during June, which is LGBTQ Pride Month. From Kentucky, Katie Myers with the Ohio Valley Resource has more.
6: On a sunny Saturday afternoon, Pikeville, Kentucky is vibrant with rainbow flags and music. I'm not afraid to tell someone this is my wife. Tanya Jones has been with her wife for 27 years. But it wasn't until 2018 that she started to feel comfortable being open in rural settings.
2: There wasn't any place local except inside your own home. You could be yourself.
6: There's increased uncertainty around LGBTQ rights in the region. But the mood is joyful at Pikeville Pride. All ages are in attendance, from babies in strollers to retirees. Rachel Daniels is 17 and identifies as pansexual. She says it's important for young people to see gay people in public.
7: I think maybe kids should know because I don't want them to feel scared if they ever do come out to their parents. So I think, I think they should know that it's okay to be part of the LGBTQ community. Exactly.
6: Across the Ohio Valley, conservative politicians have rallied around anti-LGBTQ policies in recent years. Kentucky and West Virginia both passed bills banning trans girls from participating in girls' sports. Ohio is considering a similar measure. And advocates are worried that the Supreme Court's ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade will pave the way to reconsider other privacy-related decisions, like same-sex marriage. Ohio University professor Kathleen Sullivan says it's a possibility— given the Supreme Court's conservative tilt.
2: Because oftentimes if the
8: court takes a case about an issue that's already part of its precedent, that could be an indication that it's ready to reconsider it.
6: Meanwhile, communities across the country are increasingly embracing LGBTQ people. Cities from Huntington, West Virginia, to Population 400, Vigo, Kentucky, have passed fairness ordinances that ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. Pride parades are more frequent and visible than they've ever been, but challenges remain. West Virginia University researcher Zachary Ramsey published a study in February showing LGBTQ people in rural communities often face several barriers to adequate health care.
7: Which is going to cause a lot more people to stand the closet, to not disclose information about themselves, to resort to riskier practices just because they don't want to seek out proper health care because they're afraid of what might happen if they do.
6: In Murray, Kentucky, April Hainline helped start a counseling practice to help queer people in her rural community. It is hard to be a queer person in this community. There are things that I still fear as
3: of, you know, in my late 40s that I still am not comfortable with.
6: The practice opened in January and has grown to over 500 clients. But my
3: choice is to be here and to and to do the work
6: that I think is incredibly
7: valuable. You, you better not walk away without giving me a hug, really.
6: Back at Pikeville Pride, organizer Emma Lowe hands out flags and chats with people. She says the news can feel depressing sometimes, but celebrations like this one give her hope.
0: We were a little concerned that there may be um, some like backlash or some like protesters or something like that. I haven't seen, uh, I haven't heard a peep from that.
6: Lowe is openly trans, and she lives right here in Pikeville. She says it's a tough time for trans people, but she's not going to let herself get too down.
0: I know I'm from a very rural area where um, we have to deal with things like that. But just today, I haven't seen, you know, I don't have to experience that. I don't have to see any of that today. It's just It's just a celebration. Honestly, the le- things like legislation have been the last thing on my mind today.
6: Lowe's planning an even bigger Pride event for October. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers.
0: After the break... We'll hear about how high school students with indigenous backgrounds recently gathered together in West Virginia.
8: I've always had that kind of like identity crisis where I was ashamed to be native for a little
4: bit.
0: You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. High schoolers with indigenous backgrounds came from all over the country to the eastern panhandle this summer for a leadership congress. They talked about conservation, native identity, and the growing effects of climate change. Shepard Snyder has more.
9: The Native Youth Climate Adaptation Leadership Congress, or NICALC, is a yearly event run by the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It takes place on the campus of the National Conservation Training Center about 10 minutes down the road from downtown Shepherdstown. Scott Aiken, the National Native American Programs Coordinator for the Fish and Wildlife Service, says the event's theme of climate change is one that resonates with Native
10: communities. We have permafrost melting, we have shoreline erosion, we have islands that are are being inundated. And these indigenous communities oftentimes are overlooked and, and underrepresented in the broader discussion. Each
9: year, organizers pose a big question to its attendees involving how to tackle climate change. This year's question asked how to mitigate its effects using a combination of Indigenous knowledge and Western science. Audrey Rose Sivaitasi, who traveled to Shepherdstown from American Samoa, was part of a group of students that looked at the issue from the lens of culture, tradition, and spirituality.
8: We came up with basically having Indigenous people educate Westerners, um, colonizers, or non-Indigenous people on how to fully appreciate Nature and land the same way that we do.
9: The purpose of NYCALC isn't just to have these discussions, it's also to help Native youth feel at home. Ezreal Montoya, a student from New Mexico, says her experience made her feel comfortable and proud of her Native background.
8: I've always had that kind of like identity crisis where I was ashamed to be Native for a little bit, and like I felt really bad about it, but now, like interacting with all these people who are so proud of it, Now I am, too. In a way, I kind of figured out who I am.
9: The Congress is the first time many of these students have been this far away from home. But Aiken says the event is unique in that it gives its students a growth of awareness in who they are and who they can become.
10: It's it's to recognize what is often in our society overlooked, that we have stellar students within our Native communities who uh, need opportunity to express the gifts they have.
9: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg.
0: 2023, West Virginia will be home to the last two remaining Greyhound racetracks in the United States. Reporter Randy Yowie breaks down the government policies that sustain dog racing and considers its future in the state at a time when it's dying everywhere else.
11: And there they go. They're on the run. Since 2007, West Virginia law says state-sanctioned casinos cannot operate without having horse or dog racing. A 2017 bill to eliminate the state's role in greyhound racing was passed by the legislature, but vetoed by Governor Jim Justice. Today, many legislators, like Delegate Matt Rohrbach, Republican from Cabell County, believe greyhound racing in West Virginia is on a quick path to extinction. The only thing that's really keeping it going in the two tracks in West Virginia is the requirement that they have racing in order to have the casinos and the entertainment venues that they have. Given their
12: druthers, they would get rid of the tracks and continue to operate the casino.
11: Delaware North owns Wheeling Island and Mardi Gras Casino and a resort, the two West Virginia venues with Greyhound Racing. In a statement, spokesperson Glenn White cites declining revenues and patrons and said the corporation favors decoupling state government and dog racing, including in West Virginia. Senator Ryan Weld is a Republican from Brook County in the Northern Panhandle. Weld has fought to retain Greyhound racing. He says it's a humane sport with economic benefit.
13: The city of Wheeling benefits directly from uh, revenue generated here at the casino and the track. I represent the track, I represent the casino, I represent a lot of people who work at the track, who work in the Greyhound uh, industry. I witnessed firsthand how the dogs live how they're treated, and that is why I support the industry in West
11: Virginia. Delegate Diana Graves, a Republican from Kanawha County, says even though the Mardi Gras Casino is in her backyard, West Virginia, like the rest of the states, does not belong in the dog racing business.
4: What upsets me is that government continues to to get in between a business and how it runs itself. I don't like that and uh, I think the state should be willing to turn loose of that and let casinos and the people who go there decide what the fate of casinos is going to be.
11: Delaware North says it makes very little profit on live greyhound racing due to high operation cost and limited wagering. The statewide greyhound racing and breeding industry, employing more than 1,500 people directly and indirectly, is sustained, again, by state government intervention. A legally mandated Greyhound Development Breeding Fund puts about $15 million a year from casino gaming profits to subsidize kennel and breeding operations. (laughs) Greyhound breeder Steve Saris is president of the West Virginia Kennel Owners Association. He says if his dogs don't win at the track, he doesn't get paid, so the subsidy ensures survival. Even though
10: you had to feed the dogs pay for your staff, pay for the heat, the electric, the veterinary care, all of that stuff. You just would not get any income. So the way it's set up, it's a, uh, there's built-in safeguards to ensure that the dogs get the highest level of care.
11: The racing grandstands at Mardi Gras are nearly empty on a Wednesday evening, maybe 30 betters at most. Delaware North says while losing money at the track, it does make a moderate profit from the international simulcasting of West Virginia races. Senator Weld says that's where the money is.
13: I think that the, the over-the-wire play is, the, is the, the larger part of that growth. Um, but as I said, I mean, it's very significant growth.
11: Carrie Thiel is the executive director of Gray 2K USA, a national non-profit greyhound protection organization. Thiel says the corporate profit percentage from simulcasting is only 3%, and greyhound breeders get nothing from simulcasting.
6: All, all of the, those revenues uh, stay with that out-of-state internet gambling company. And so, you know, ironically, the state subsidy program for greyhound racing uh, and, the, and this sort of final death throes of the industry has really become – a state subsidy program that benefits these
11: out of state internet gambling companies. Delegate Rohrbach says if and when the state cuts ties with the sport, it needs to be sensitive to the dogs left behind and the jobs lost. We'll just look at a fair mechanism to decouple, would we'll probably have a timeline and some phase out. And I believe that's exactly what happened in the other states. In December, the West Memphis, Arkansas Greyhound Racing Track, also owned by Delaware North, will be the last track in America to close, other than the two in West Virginia. The corporation worked with Arkansas Kennel owners for a three year phase out of racing.
10: Six and eight making some moves looking for it,
11: Many live patrons at Wheeling Island and Mardi Gras, like Joe Jackbert, see the writing on the wall. Jackbird has been playing the dogs in Wheeling since the 1970s, and he hopes to keep playing in the future.
0: If you look up Greyhound in a dictionary, it says racing. That's what the dogs made for is racing. I can't believe that we're going to be the only state to have you know, the only
9: two
11: tracks left, which I'm glad. Some state legislators in West Virginia believe another Greyhound racing decoupling bill will be presented in the 2023 general legislative session. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie.
0: As old coal mines are restored, they've been repurposed for an increasingly broad number of new uses. In Pennsylvania, reclaimed mine land is being used for an art project involving birds. Kara Hulsapel and Jackie Sieber of the Allegheny Front have more.
3: A hidden gem in Butler County is a haven for wildlife and art. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Kara Holsoppel. An art installation reclaimed abandoned coal mine land for native plant and animal species. Recently, the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh hosted a nature outing there in connection with a current art exhibit. The Allegheny Front's Jackie Sieber has more.
12: A group of about 15 people arrived by bus to environmental reclamation artist Angelo Ciotti's property. They're here because Jose Diaz, chief curator at the Andy Warhol Museum, wanted to connect artist Paolo Pivi's exhibit, I Want It All, which bridges the relationship between human manipulation and wildlife, to Ciotti's restoration art.
4: There's a really uh, robust ecosystem that's been revitalized, and. To bring science and the arts together, I think, is something that Andy Warhol would have
0: uh, celebrated.
12: Be careful, we're going through the wetlands. Siori guides guests along a muddy path to his 22-acre earthwork called Twin Stupas. The installation is two mounds, each the size of a football field. One is inverted 45 feet deep, and the other is 60 feet high. It kind of looks like the yin-yang Yang symbol.
0: This shape was chosen because the stupa was the first shape we know of In civilization, people buried their dead in the fetal position in a mound.
12: When Siori purchased the land in 1970, it was contaminated from an abandoned surface coal mine. The mining altered the landscape and caused acid mine drainage. Siori directed the drainage to small settling ponds made with limestone for treatment. It was
0: like a moonscape stopping the flow of silt and indigenous vegetation started taking hold. And the entire valley was covered with grass.
12: Now the land is rich with wildflowers, pine trees, and songbirds. That's where Nicolaitis, an avian conservation biologist, comes in. He introduced Diaz to the Twin Stupas a year ago.
0: Jose was interested in my conservation work, the fact that I banned in these human altered landscapes, and decided that a field trip out here to see my conservation work in this formerly degraded landscape would be an interesting way of framing the work of Paola Peavy and, and vice versa.
12: Peavy's art installation has a lot of feathers, such as her collection of 27 colorful feathery polar bears mimicking human behavior. Earlier in the morning, Liatus and his assistant set up large, nearly transparent nets near the stupas. The nets have pockets of very thin thread to catch birds. They're then placed in a cotton sack to calm them down. He catches migratory birds to record data and puts a tiny band around their leg. Each band has a unique number that tracks the bird.
0: It fits like a little bracelet and rotates up and down the bird's leg.
12: For the bird banding demonstration, Leatus opens a cotton bag and out pops a reddish-brown forest bird that already has a band on its leg.
0: Viris do breed around the stupas. This is one of our longest migrating songbirds. This bird comes from the central, central South America. Because it has a band on it, it's coming back to its territory, so that's really exciting.
12: He then measures the bird's wings and beak. Then he blows on the bird's translucent skin to check for how much fat it has and to determine its sex.
2: It's an after second year
0: male.
12: Once the information is collected, Leatus lets go of the bird. There goes. After the demonstration, participants like Kevin Patterson were thrilled about how intimate the experience was.
11: Absolutely fantastic use of
10: a
8: couple of hours uh, to to learn about this and and to think about how we can contribute
12: to it moving forward. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Jackie Sieber.
3: There's more at alleghenyfront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holzapel.
0: The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports regional environmental news. In West Virginia, supply chain issues and rising gas prices are making it harder for people to get food. As David Atkins reports, local entrepreneurs are looking to meet the demand.
10: The American food retail landscape is structured around hypermarkets, such as Walmart, which carry out large-scale food distribution for population centers. Smaller grocery stores have traditionally carried out food distribution for rural communities, but that may be in jeopardy. Bridget Lambert is the president of the West Virginia Retailer Association. She says that smaller grocery stores are disappearing partly due to an unstable supply chain.
13: They rely on food distribution networks that deliver to rural areas. And so about several years ago, we had a large distribution center close in the Cabell County area.
10: And that is affecting smaller towns. On April 1st, 2022, the Poca Food Fair permanently closed its doors, meaning residents have to travel to neighboring towns for the bulk of their groceries. Jackie Dolan is a resident of Poca. She travels to Dunbar, Nitro, and Eleanor for her grocery shopping.
13: You can't make two, three, four trips. You know, I have to like plan one whole day.
10: According to Lambert, having to travel further to buy groceries, the rising price of gas, and the rising costs of products are changing the shopping habits of the state's rural residents.
13: So instead of going to the store weekly, they may go bi-weekly or once a month. Of course, the increased cost of gasoline, that money will come out of a family's budget somewhere, and it may well come out of the food budget.
10: Kirsten and Eric Courtney are also residents of Poca. They say the cost of going grocery shopping has gone up significantly. Probably like 250 to $300 a week
7: yeah, on groceries. It's, it's been and very expensive.
10: I ran to Walmart once today, and... Uh, got gas and I've got to go get gas again." For a long time, residents of Clay County have lived without ready access to a full-service grocery store. Clay County is often considered one of the worst food deserts in the state. In November 2021, a Parmar store fitted with grocery products opened in Maisel to help meet the demand for a grocer. A cashier at the store, Ethan Smith, says the store has cut down on travel time for shopping
13: Usually you have to go
10: either to Elkview or Sutton at Kroger or the
13: Save-A-Lot. But since we got this place here, it's helped out a whole lot.
10: Aside from the Parmar, local businesses in Clay County have helped expand food access. Stores like House's Supermarket and Brickmore meet the community's grocery needs, minus certain types of fresh meat. There's also Legacy Foods Market and Bakery in Indoor and the Clay County Farmers Market in Clay. Lambert says communities in Clay County didn't react passively towards food scarcity.
13: Food desert situations have created some very unique opportunities for small business owners in West Virginia to open niche markets. Communities are stepping up and addressing this situation in a multitude of ways.
10: The local food purchase assistant cooperative agreement program is part of the American Rescue Plan. The program aims to strengthen local supply chains and support local producers. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm David Atkins in Huntington.
0: Mountain View Solar, a solar installation company in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, is training and hiring people in recovery from substance use disorder. Shepard Snodder has more.
9: The company works with Mountaineer Recovery Center, a substance use treatment facility based in Kearneysville, to help those who have graduated from their program find work. Clinical psychologist Dr. Jonathan Hartens is the CEO of Mountaineer Behavioral Health, the company that runs the center.
0: We really view recovery from addiction as similar to uh, recovery from cancer, recovery from heart disease, any other kind of chronic medical condition. One of the best uh, mitigators of relapse is getting right back into the workforce.
9: After a 30-day program that moves its residents away from drugs and alcohol and promotes sober living, the center focuses on getting its residents back into a positive community.
7: As graduates, uh, members go through the program, we really are intentional about getting them connected to the community.
9: After teaming with Mountain View Solar on a job to add solar panels to the Mountaineer Recovery Center building, Harton spoke with company owner Mike McKechnie about a partnership. McKechnie says that not only do they set up Recovery Center graduates with a job in solar panel installation, but with housing and transportation as well. This provides their workers with easier access and resources to be able to work. But McKechnie says it also sets them up for a future career outside of the company. People coming out of Recovery
7: usually don't have a car, don't have a cell phone, don't have a job, don't have potentially the skills they need to get reengaged in the workforce. What we saw was a lot of desire, but they're missing these tools, which can be inhibitors to getting a job.
9: One worker who came to Mountain View Solar from Dr. Hartons is Josue Perez, who goes by JP to those who know him. He's worked for the company for around four months after going through the recovery program and says the positive environment has been a major factor in staying clean.
11: People will extend their hand to you, and they say, here you go. Here's another chance of a lifetime. Here is what you deserve to get in order for you to get your feet wet.
9: McKechnie says he's already hired three people from the Mountaineer Recovery Center and wants the program to be a continuous pipeline, providing more workers with the employment and resources to help them make the transition to a sober life. It's something that most companies don't do.
13: What I want to tell them is you're missing some really good people. Everybody deserves a second chance.
9: As a worker, JP agrees. He says if they give more people going through recovery the opportunity, they'll be more than willing to rise to the occasion.
11: What I was and what I am today and where I'm pushing to be is what matters to me. It's what makes the difference and it's what what makes the person.
9: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg.
0: During the pandemic, 18 million Americans turned to gardening. Even a good friend of mine, who's hated tomatoes since we were kids, started growing a garden because, quote, he wanted to be part of it. Here in Appalachia, people have long saved seeds to grow heirloom vegetable varieties that have been passed down for generations. Traditionally, these special seeds connected you to a larger community. Today, that tradition continues, partly through organizations like seed libraries and community gardens that collect these seeds to save them from being lost. Folkways reporter Rachel Green spent time in Ashe County, North Carolina, talking to the people giving new life to old seeds.
8: When Travis Birdsell visited the barn of an Ashe County farmer in 2017, he had no idea what he'd find.
7: The upper levels of the barn were being picked, and they found seeds smeared on an old uh, grocery store paper sack, and all the words said were Big Red.
8: Big Red? ended up being an Oxheart tomato, an heirloom variety that's famous for its huge size. You can't miss it. Each tomato clocks in at two to two and a half pounds. That's more than four times the size of an average tomato in the grocery store. There are only a few tomatoes on each vine, surrounded by wispy leaves. Bertzel, who's the Ash County Cooperative Extension director, decided to plant the ox seeds. He didn't know what to expect. No one knew how long the tomato seeds had been there.
7: There was only one seed that germinated from what we found in the top of that barn.
8: Now, the Oxheart is a staple in the Ashe County Victory Garden. Birdsell started the garden in 2016 to preserve and reintroduce heirloom vegetable varieties in southern Appalachia. And he says that heirlooms, like the Oxheart tomato, have a flavor, shape, and even color that's unique. There's literally no other tomato like it. When Birdsell told me about the tomato, I knew I had to try it. Even late in the growing season, most of the tomatoes were still green, but I managed to find one that was fully ripe. I knew I wouldn't be able to eat it all by myself, so I enlisted my mom and little sisters <laughs> oh to help.
12: <laughs> the biggest what a tomato! tomato. The biggest tomato I've ever seen. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I wonder how it tastes. How much does it weigh?
8: The tomato was impressive. It was enormous, of course, and also a vibrant red. There were just a few seeds, mostly around the outer edges. Otherwise, the inside was firm and meaty, just like Birdsell described. Mmm! The flavor is incredibly rich and robust. Now, I don't like to admit it, but I don't normally go for a tomato unless it's something really special. And I was worried this one might be tough since it doesn't have many seeds. But it's tender and juicy and slightly sweet. This is a good tomato for everyone that doesn't think they like tomatoes. Varieties like the oxart tomato are kept alive thanks to the work of seed savers. And here in Ash County and throughout Appalachia, the work they do is crucial in keeping heirloom varieties on our tables and in our bellies. Burtzel hopes to use the Victory Garden to highlight that.
7: We still want to play into the culture that's alive and well in southern Appalachia, which is independence. And this is a way to tap into food independence.
8: Getting seeds into the hands of home gardeners is a key part of that self-sufficiency. This year, Burtzel hopes to produce enough of the oxheart tomatoes to make seeds available to the public next year through the Ashe County Seed Library, which is about a mile up the road in West Jefferson, North Carolina.
5: So our seed library is located in an old uh,
0: card catalog.
8: This is Lee Payne, a reference librarian at the Ashe County Public Library.
0: And so the way that it's organized in the drawers are alphabetical by seed type.
8: When I visit the seed library, the drawers are stuffed with dozens of varieties of seeds. There are beans, an Ash County staple, and also tomatoes, greens, and even flowers. Each tiny manila envelope contains about a dozen seeds. All the seeds at the Ash County Seed Library are free. You
0: don't even need a library card. We do want to make things available, and so if you want to try a new variety of corn, if we have it, take it. It's yours. And when the cost
8: of heirloom seeds can sometimes be more than $4 in stores, It can seem like a radical idea to give them away, says Birdsell.
7: Being able to provide for yourself is liberating. And being able to have access to free seeds is the start of that process.
8: And some of these seeds have been saved generation after generation by local families. That's Vida Blevins' story. Her brother donated a special variety of pole bean that's been a staple in their family since the 1920s. I visit Blevins and her mom, Kata Owen McNeil, at their townhouse in Jefferson. It's on a hill that overlooks Main Street, less than a quarter mile from the Victory Garden. The space is cozy. Family portraits and paintings line the walls. Blevins doesn't grow a garden now. That's her brother's hobby. But she does appreciate that he shares the bounty from his garden year after year. And now that the family's pole bean is available in the seed library... Anyone in the community is able to try it.
13: Uh, And they are a flat bean, kind of like a Kentucky Wonder.
8: She called it the six-week bean.
13: And they will uh, produce in six weeks from the day they were planted.
8: Blevins remembers her family liked to grow the bean because they could have up to two harvests a year, more than a traditional green bean. She and her brother learned to save seeds from their parents, their mom, McNeil, has lived in Ashe County for a century.
13: I was uh, born in Crumper, North Carolina in 1919.
8: McNeil was the seventh child of 12. She grew up on a family farm just a few miles north of Jefferson. They grew and preserved most of the food they ate. She remembers giant 65-gallon barrels of sauerkraut that her family would make and share with their neighbors. And to save money... They spent many hours at the end of each season saving seeds.
13: So we wouldn't have to
3: buy them.
8: <laughs> McNeil grew up during the Great Depression. Then, seed saving was a necessity. This was before vegetable varieties were domesticated like they are today. They saved seeds from apples, cabbage, and parsnips. Her dad even built a small room specifically for drying pumpkin and apple seeds. She taught her daughter to save seeds, too. I can
13: just see the tomato seeds on the cloth lying in the window.
8: Blevins is describing a process called dry processing. You let the seeds dry in the sun.
13: But I think it's kind of a lost art now.
8: Seed saving may be less common than it was a few decades ago, but it can still have the power to shape entire communities, says Sarah Harrison, who donated seeds to the Ashcone Seed Library.
2: Seeds are... So important. Um, We don't really think about it that much. But the fact of the matter is one simple seed can produce a whole plant, which can produce hundreds of more seeds, which can feed a whole community.
8: And the cost of losing these seeds could be devastating for Appalachian communities down the road, says Chris Smith, the executive director of the Utopian Seed Project, based in Asheville, North Carolina.
4: It's really sad. We've seen such a narrowing of available varieties, and that means a narrowing of available genetics.
8: Smith says that seed saving helps build ecological resilience. Because if we only have a handful of different types of tomatoes or types of beans, we aren't as adaptable as we would be if we have hundreds of different types of heirloom seeds kept somewhere safe. As a researcher, he says that genetic diversity in seeds is key for a sustainable, resilient future
4: we're saving our own seeds in our own regions, then what we see is crop adaptability from season to season.
8: And the seeds that have grown here in this climate for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, are simply better adapted to Southern Appalachia than most of the seeds you can buy in the store. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Green in Ashe County, North Carolina.
0: Seed libraries aren't just in Appalachia, but across the country and around the world. The United Nations keeps a seed vault in Norway to preserve seeds in case of a man-made or natural catastrophe. It's sometimes been referred to as the Doomsday Vault. To find a seed library near you, where you might check out heirloom seeds to grow, visit SeedLibrarian.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Marissa Anderson, Michael Howard, Josh Woodward, and the Hillbilly Gypsies. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander alloy also helped produce this episode you can find us on twitter at in appalachia you can also send us an email to inside appalachia at wvpublic.org visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories or look for inside appalachia at your favorite podcast provider inside appalachia is a production of west virginia public broadcasting